I invite you this morning to open to the book of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, sometimes called a minor prophets, these 12 books that are lumped together, but uh, they're not minor at all in the sense of theology, in the sense of God's power, God's truth. Uh, the Jews just called them the book of the 12. They were 12 books of prophetic writings they could put together on a scroll. So they're called the book of 12. And they they tell us a story, a story of what's happening in Israel, a story of God's doctrine. And, and it's also a story of what sin does to a person and what sin does to a nation. We can learn a lot from the book of Jonah, but the main message is God's great compassion. That's the theme of the whole book, is God's great compassion. We saw it a bit last week in chapter 1, and this week we see it in chapter 2 with Jonah himself. Jonah himself being saved. So let's begin uh, really with chapter 1, verse 17, a verse that that should go with chapter 2. It's that way in the Hebrew versions, but in our English versions it comes in chapter 1. So starting in one seventeen, I want to read the passage to you, and I want you to see today's sermon is entitled, Salvation is from the Lord. I think you'll see where I get that title here. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. And he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. O Lord, let us learn from this passage what you would have us to learn from it, the reason that you put it there, the the original intent. Let us see the meaning. Let us see how important it is to understand that salvation only comes from you. Salvation only comes from you. That is what we ask as we look at this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news for the sinner. It's good news for the saint, the person who's already been saved. It's good news because God is the one saving us. We cannot save ourselves. That's the bad news. But it's it's good news that Christ came to die on the cross, that Christ came to die for sinners. And if we are sinners and we, we repent of our sin and we have trust that he's our savior, then he will indeed save us. And not just for a moment, but he will keep us. And and the Bible speaks of different ways in the New Testament of being saved. When we talk about justification, the the Bible, the apostles, and and Jesus say that you are saved when you're justified. But Paul also talks about being saved as you're being sanctified. So God is keeping us and he's, he's continuing to save us. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out in your sanctification. But it's God who's doing the work in you, Paul says. And he also points to the future to glorification and says that we will be saved. So we have been saved. We're being saved. We're being sanctified. And we will be saved. We will be glorified and saved from the judgment. So the the good news is, 
Yes, we're justified, but we're also secure in God eternally. No matter how much we try to run from God, like Jonah, no matter how much we fall into sin sometimes and backslide, it's not as if we're to sit back and be passive. We are to repent and return to God, but God has us. If you're truly in Christ, God has us. And when he has us and when we sin as believers, he wants to teach us a lesson. He wants to teach us that sin is wrong and remind us to trust in him and to be faithful to him. God will indeed discipline and sanctify us along the way. We're not just to be looking back. We're not just to be looking forward. We are, of course, to be looking both directions as a Christian. We're also to be looking now. What's my current life like? What is God showing me in my life as far as my sin? What is God doing to discipline me when I sin? Do you recall when we went through chapter 1 last week that we saw Jonah is indeed a true prophet of God. He, He spoke a prophecy to Israel and it came true. He was sent by God. He faithfully spoke the words of God. It's in 2 Kings that he he prophesied that Jeroboam's northern kingdom would expand, and it did. So he is a true prophet, and he was glad to prophesy as long as it came to the nation of Israel. But he'd rather not speak words of salvation. He'd rather not prophesy to Gentiles, to the people that he hated, to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. He'd rather die, in fact, than, than go and tell that city to repent. Because he knows God's great compassion. It is very likely God would save them when they do repent. And so he he goes down and takes a ship in the opposite direction. And he goes to Tarshish, which is as far as you can go west in that day from Israel. The furthest city known. And he he gets in this massive storm. But he's just asleep in the bottom of the ship. And the sailors are, are kind of going crazy. What do they do? How do they get through this? They find out it's Jonah's fault. Jonah says, throw me in the water. Jonah says, this is brought upon me because of what I've done. Because he has run from God. He has rebelled against God. He refuses to submit to God. Even though he's a believer, we would say. Even though he's saved, he is running from God. And so they throw him overboard. They don't want to. They're scared. But in in the whole process, they get saved. These pagan sailors get saved. And they make sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord God of Israel. And they make promises and vows to follow him. So we see in in chapter 1 that Jonah had turned away from the word of God and he had turned away from the presence of God. He knew what he had to do. He was told clearly by revelation from God and he decided to ignore it. He decided to rebel. He decided to run away from God. So now we look at the next section of Jonah's story and in chapter 2 we're to learn the lesson that Jonah learned in chapter 2. It's meant to teach Israel then and and all believers now that God indeed saves sinners. He doesn't just save them physically. He doesn't just save them spiritually. He does both and he continues to do so. And he continues to show his grace even when they run from him. That's what Jonah realized in chapter 2. He doesn't fully repent and confess his sin. We don't see that in this chapter. But we do see him acknowledge God's faithfulness. We see him admit that he's got to Go and do what God has said. God's not done with him even after chapter 2. We'll, we'll see more of Jonah's internal struggles as we go throughout the book. But at the heart of it, this isn't just a fish story. This isn't even about the fish, really. It's about God and how God acts with his people. It's about God and how God delivers his people. It's about God and God's grace to his people. So as we look at this, I want you to see three responses. Three responses from Jonah. Three responses that we ought to have 
to God's grace. If salvation is from the Lord, that means something for us. We're not just to sit around and say salvation is from the Lord a thousand times a minute. That means something for us. We are to live a certain way and and respond a certain way in our minds because of it. So firstly, the, the first response that we get from this passage is that you're to recognize the sovereignty of God. Recognize the sovereignty of God. Many Christians don't want to recognize the sovereignty of God. We, we've already seen it in Jonah chapter 1. It's from the first verse of the Bible until the last verse of the Bible. God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over his creation. He's sovereign over creatures. He's sovereign over kings. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over babies. He's sovereign over elderly. He's sovereign over salvation. There's nowhere God's not sovereign. He's sovereign over sin. When sin occurs, he's not causing it, but he's sovereign over it. He's foreordained all things to come to pass. That gives us comfort to know that God is sovereign. And and it comforts Jonah, not at first, not at first, but he recognizes God's sovereignty. That's the first thing that we have to do when we think about salvation is from the Lord. Whether an unbeliever comes to Christ or you're already in Christ and you've sinned, you have to recognize that God is sovereign. So we see this from 117 through 2-3. The very first words of 117. And the Lord. Remember, Lord in all caps in the NASB is, is a, a word for Yahweh in the Old Testament. The covenant name of God. The personal God. Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. How many think this whole story is false? They, they look at this and say it's ridiculous. How can a fish swallow Jonah. And others say, you know, Jonah's just a fish story because we learned that in Sunday school as kids, right? And we have these little toys and these little books that even my kids read. And it's all about the fish and it's all about the fish. But yet, the fish is only mentioned here and at the end of chapter 2. It's only mentioned twice and very briefly at that. Those who say it couldn't happen think that it's not a fish large enough to do such a thing. But, but remember, in the original languages. That will often incorporate, a word like fish will incorporate more than just the little things we catch at the lake or at the ocean. A fish is just a general word here in Hebrew. It can mean large fish. It can mean whale. It could even mean some of the large creatures that are described in different places in Scripture. It's just a general word for fish. Any animal that swims in the water. Could have been a huge fish. Could have been some kind of whale or could have been some extinct creature. You know, Jesus in the New Testament just says it's a sea monster. A sea monster to the ancient peoples wasn't uh, some dragon necessarily, but it was just something huge and mysterious and fearful that swam in the ocean. And so it says the Lord appointed this. That, I mean, that's the point here. It's not that it's a, a great fish, that's, that's mighty, but the Lord appointed it. That he prepared it. He created it just for this purpose and caused it to be at the right moment and the right place when Jonah fell into the water. God's sovereign over his creatures. God created this huge fish or whatever it is to, to come and be there for Jonah's deliverance. The wages of, of sin are death. And Jonah expected that his punishment for sin would just be death. And yet God appointed an animal to come and scoop him up. He didn't expect that God would be compassionate and deliver him by the means of a fish. Often when we sin as believers, we, we just expect that God's going to punish us judge us and he so many times shows up and is compassionate not literally shows up but shows up using his providence 
things of the world put pressure on us and eventually drive us back to him. Now, this wasn't a fun ride. It's not like in the kids' books where he was just having a good time, lighting a, a fire and, you know, having a camp out inside the fish. This would be something of a nightmare for a person to be entombed in a dark, wet, squishy, digestive organ of a, of a great fishy animal. Acidic juices, stinking meat and bones from the fish, hardly any breathing space. Uh, the fish's previous meal would just be rotting away there. There's going to be moving the water. There's going to be the sense of moving through the water, vertigo, this Awful smell, stale, acrid air. I can imagine Jonah getting sick to his stomach many times being inside this fish. But sometimes the deliverance of God is not a comfortable ride back. It's not comfortable to be brought back to God by him. It's his discipline, and it's not always a fun experience. But I'm thankful that he does it. I'm thankful that he's gracious enough and compassionate enough to do that. It can be very awful for our senses and very awful for our bodies and very awful for our minds and our spirits to be brought back to God like this. But God's sovereign. He's sovereign over all these events. He's he's sovereign enough to appoint a great fish to create it, to make it there at the right exact second that it needs to be there. Well, because of this, as I said, many want to deny this event. They say that it's made up. They say that Jonah never existed, or if he did, that he just made up a story to teach a lesson. It's kind of like a, a fable or a myth. Others accept the fact of of the fish swallowing Jonas, but they take an allegorical interpretation. They say the lesson here is not that God redeems, but that God baptizes, that he took Jonah down into the water and brought him up, or that Jonah was somehow resurrected because of the New Testament allusions and quoting from this passage. They think that the lesson here is that God will resurrect after three days and three nights. Well, to those, I would just say we have to interpret the text literally. The text says it happened. We believe the Bible if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. You believe that it happened. There's no indication that it's figurative. There's no indication that it's uh, metaphorical. And in fact, Jesus said it happened. He quoted, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus believed it. And if we believe in Jesus, that's, that's really good enough. But if we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, then of course that speaks for itself as well. Jesus believed it. Jonah believed it. He's telling us the story of what happened right here. And it says he was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. This tells us about how far that the ship had traveled out to sea when he was thrown overboard. It had probably traveled that far from Joppa and he's thrown overboard. Now now the fish has to take him back to land and it takes three days and three nights to get back there. Not only did Jesus believe in Jonah, but he quotes this exact verse. If you'd like to turn over to Matthew 12 and I want you to see how Jesus uses this verse because it's going to play into chapter 3 next week when we get to Jonah going to Nineveh. But Jesus quotes here Matthew 12 starting in verse 38. So let's do a bit of a Bible study on that. There's a New Testament connection here. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something miraculous. Do something special for us, Jesus. How do we know you're the Son of God? How do we know you are who you say you are? And he answers and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. That's a whole sermon in itself. People who crave for for miracles and signs and and don't seek the actual Savior. But we'll move on. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. The only sign that the unbelievers are going to see, the unbelieving generation of Jews and even those who read the scriptures today, the only sign that Jesus gives to them is the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. So there he's quoting from our passage that we just read. He was there three days and three nights, Jesus said. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what is this sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about? Well, the fact that he was three days and three nights in the fish. You see, everybody tries to explain the fact that this could happen. They look to stories from the 1800s. Somebody got swallowed by a fish and then they survived. And later those stories are disproven. They never happened. It's miraculous. Of course it's never happened. Of course we don't expect it to happen. And that's the point Jesus is making. That it was a miraculous sign for the people of Nineveh. And it eventually led to their repentance. Well, look at that in chapter 3 of Jonah. But the point Jesus is making is he's going to have that miraculous sign as well. Not going into a fish, but three days and three nights somewhere. And then he'll be resurrected. The, The sign of Jonah is a miraculous sovereign act of God that proves Jonah is a legitimate prophet before all of Nineveh. And the sign of Jonah applied to Jesus is similar. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. And he will be raised again on the third day. And therefore, Israel should acknowledge that and believe in him. If Nineveh can repent, a pagan city that they are, if they will repent from the preaching of Jonah because he came out of a fish, well then, the same should be said of the Jews whenever Jesus is raised from the dead. But looking more at God's sovereignty here, starting in chapter 2 here in our versions, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. So not only are we told that God is sovereign over the creature and makes the creature be there at the exact moment and makes the creature swallow Jonah, but then Jonah prays now to God from the stomach of the fish. So the beginning of his prayer is going to teach us more about God's sovereignty. And Jonah recognized that. He recognized that. He prayed inside the fish. And he's not, he's not praying about being in the fish. Sometimes it's misinterpreted that the fish is a punishment and that Jonah is somehow praying about what's going on in the fish. No, he's looking back to what happened when he was in the water. The fish is a deliverance. The fish is God's compassion. It wouldn't be a fun ride back, but still it is God's salvation God's deliverance so Jonah's now in the fish he has three days to do nothing but pray and so he starts to pray to God even though the pagan sailor told him to do that in chapter one we don't know that he did he probably didn't but now he prays he prays and he prays a prayer of thankfulness about being delivered from death in the ocean it's not just about Jonah the prophet this teaches us about who God is This prayer, often all prayers in the Bible, teaches about who God is. Jonah's a disobedient prophet. He's an unfaithful servant of God. But how does God treat him? Does God cast him off? Does God destroy him? God could have done that and been completely just. But he doesn't. God shows him grace. God shows him sovereign grace. Look at his prayer in verse 2. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, to Yahweh. And he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So he starts out just making a statement about God, and then he directly addresses God. He tells us here in his prayer that, that the fish who came and got him was, was a deliverance. God, That's God's answer to the prayer. That's God's answer to the prayer. He's thrown overboard. He's in the stormy seas. We're going to see that he continues to go down in the water. His life was in great distress. And he's praying here that you heard my prayer, Lord. You, you heard me. He felt like he was going to die. And he even says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol designates the the place in the Old Testament that people knew that unbelievers went to. The wicked realm. It's not just the place of the dead. Sometimes that's that's what people think. But it's actually a, a place where the wicked are held for final judgment. In fact, if you have a King James, it says he was in the belly of hell. Sheol's like the New Testament hell. 
In the King James, it says, I cried for help from the belly of hell. Because the word depth here is literally belly. The belly of Sheol. Jonah saying that God has cast me off. I, I, I've been lost. I, I'm going to pay the punishment. I'm going to be judged. God's let me go. He's, he's cast me off. I'm no longer saved. I'm going to go in this dark, deep, dark place and await punishment. I'm disobedient. We first have to stop and just ask, why did Jonah even pray? You remember in chapter 1, he wants to be thrown overboard? He says, hey, this is, this is God's punishment for me. I've sinned. I'm causing trouble on you sailors. Just throw me overboard. I'd rather die, in other words, than go to Nineveh. God's going to punish me anyway. So just throw me over. I'll just die. I'll be punished. Why would Jonah call out to God? Well, it shows us here that even those who, who backslide from the faith, that when they're in dire straits, they call upon the compassion and grace of God. Whenever we're, we're in our sin, or, or maybe just ignoring God, which is a sin in and of itself, we still pray to God when things get tough, when things get hard. We, we run back to God. You might recall a few weeks ago, I quoted Charles Spurgeon, and he says, you know, everyone who's, who's down in the belly of fish will then say, God, is our salvation. Because in hard times, we're thankful that God is there to listen. Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with God in chapter 1. He wouldn't even pray when the pagans told him to. And now, he will pray because he wants God's compassion, God's grace. He won't give it to Nineveh, but he wants it for himself, for sure. So in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Well, if you look back at 1.15, it says the sailors threw him overboard. But now he realizes the sovereignty of God, even in men's actions. He says that God did this. God hurled them into the sea. Jonah knows God's sovereignty. He recognizes this is all of the Lord. He recognizes that God was the source of his chastisement. It was, it was God who cast him into the sea. He had provoked the Lord by his own sin, and God's disciplining him. God's disciplining him. He knows that. He recognizes that. And he goes on. It just gets worse as you go down here. He says, the current engulfed me. So he's thrown overboard because of God's sovereignty. God is chastising him. And right into the heart of the sea here. And then the the current, the the currents in the ocean, like a river, really is this word, is a river, has swept over him and covered him completely. There was a great storm, but remember it calms down. Just the sea current itself, though, covers Jonah and takes him down. And notice the next line in verse 3. All your breakers, breakers are waves breaking over, and your billows, large swells of water in the ocean, they passed over me. These are the Lord's waves here. He's saying, you threw me overboard, and you're making the waves, your waves, come over my head. You're drowning me, God. You're drowning me. And he's not mad. He's not complaining. He expects that this will happen. He admits that God is sovereign and, and doing this. But these are the Lord's waves. God has brought this about. I like what Martin Luther, the great reformer, says about this. He says, Jonah does not say the waves and the billows of the sea went over me, but thy waves and thy billows. Because he felt in his conscience that the sea with its waves and billows was a servant of God and of his wrath to punish sin. The creation was was punishing Jonah. That's what he felt like. It was not punishment as much as discipline. Now, God would never do that, would he? Would God actually punish a believer in, in the form of discipline? I've talked to Christians who don't believe that, but the scriptures say that over and over. It's not eternal punishment. It's not hell. It's not eternal judgment. But it is a type of punishment and discipline in this life. Psalm 119, 75. I, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. 
I know that your judgments are righteous, God. Everything you do is righteous. And that's why in faithfulness, in love, you have afflicted me. Hebrews 12, 6 quotes from Proverbs 3, 12. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's out of Proverbs. It's out of Hebrews, Old Testament, New Testament. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. You think we can come to Christ and just live in sin like it's nothing? God's going to scourge you. God's going to whip you is the language here, like you whip a child when they've done wrong. In Revelation 3, Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You want to avoid discipline of the Lord? Be zealous and repent as a believer. You want to avoid that? You can. It's easy. Just, just be zealous. Follow the Lord with all your heart, mind, strength, your soul, and repent. Sometimes we don't, and we'll be disciplined. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't think that God has automatically cast us off. We should return to him. I mean, do you recognize the sovereignty of God in your life when this happens? When this happens, when, when the Lord does something in your life. Maybe it's from a sin. Maybe it's because you've ignored what he's trying to, to point you towards. Maybe you just made a lot of mistakes. They're not necessarily sins, but they're just mistakes that, that weigh you down and keep you from serving him. You've got to recognize the sovereignty of God. God God's compassionate. He's not going to let us stray forever but we need to recognize that he is sovereign over all that's happening and and look to the scriptures to point us and and even his providence what's he doing in the world and in my life to make me come back to him secondly i want you to see in this passage and respond by seeing the the helplessness of man the helplessness of man number two we see this in verse verses four to six b man is is helpless we can do nothing without god nothing We can't save ourselves. We can't keep ourselves saved. We can't physically deliver us. Somehow we can deliver ourselves from life and death situations. People die every second, every day. They can't stop it. It happens. Cataclysmic events happen in the world that can't be stopped. As much as we have technology today, we're still helpless. Even as believers, as as sanctified as we might be, we're still helpless to do the things that God can only do. And, and a person has to recognize God as sovereign and they have to recognize that we're helpless, that I'm helpless, that you're helpless. Man is helpless. Jonah realizes this in his prayer in verse 4. He says, uh, so I said, because of what God is doing in his sovereignty, I said I've been expelled from your sight. Lord, I must be completely out of your sight. I'm, I'm under the water. I'm going down in the ocean. I feel abandoned by God at the moment. I'm not able to be seen by God anymore. Again, he's not thinking about God's omnipresence and omniscience. He's just thinking about his own situation and he feels helpless because he is helpless. He can't can't save himself here. Jonah does not think that that God's going to do anything for him at this moment. Now, he knows when he's writing this down later. He knows when he's in the fish what happened, but his prayer goes back to the moment it's happening and he's describing it. And so he thinks that God is punishing him. It's done. But he says, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. I'm helpless, God. I can do nothing, but I'm going to look towards your temple. Now he's not literally in in the water looking at the temple. He's too far to see the temple. This is a way of describing God's presence. He just said, I feel like I'm cast out of your presence. I'm expelled from your presence. It's it's helpless. But he's faithfully looking to God. God resides in the holy temple in heaven. And it's the holy temple upon the earth in Jerusalem at that time. 
where God's presence was especially felt by the Jews. So whatever he's talking about here, either the heavenly temple or the earthly temple, his focus is going to be on God. He's helpless. What, what, can, what can Jonah do? Nothing. What can we do? What can we do without God? You think if you run from God, you can do anything? You can sin, but God's not going to bless that sin, and he's not going to, to help you do the things that you ought to be doing until he comes and he rescues you. Water encompassed me in verse 5. It encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And notice the waves are no longer being described as God's waves. He feels like God's abandoned him. At first, God sent the waves and pushed him down. Now God's just abandoned him, left him to the ocean depths. The waves are surrounding him here. It says the deep, the deep crevices in the sea are engulfing him. Even the seaweeds at the bottom of the sea, they're wrapping around his head. This is language that speaks of being buried, like you would be wrapped in ancient times to be buried. He's, he's essentially going through a burial at sea. Try as hard as he can, he cannot free himself from this watery prison. He's been sent down, expelled from God, he feels like, and everything is just coming in upon him and wrapping him up for death. I descended to the roots of the mountains. There's a lot of debate about what this means, but if you look throughout Scripture, the idea that the mountain bases extend down to the very bottom of the sea was their, was their view of the world. In other words, the foundations of the continents, that's how we would say it. As far down as you can go, that's how Jonah felt like he was descending. He's gone so deep that it feels like he's at the deepest part of the ocean. As far from the world of the living as anyone can imagine. He's so deep that all help is totally out of reach. He feels helpless. I looked up the furthest dive without equipment that a person has gone is 702 feet, just holding their breath. If God wants to, with the currents of the ocean and the waves, I think he can put him down faster and even further that breath won't matter. So we don't know how deep he went here. We don't know how, how shallow it was where the ship was when they threw him overboard. But it's deep enough that he feels like he's about to die. He is about to die. Seaweeds are wrapping around his head. He was all the way down to the roots of the mountains. And then it says, the earth with its bars was around me forever. These bars here are bars of a city gate. They're used elsewhere to mean bars of a city gate. God has sent him down, cast him out into the ocean, and these bars are now going to lock him in. He describes this underworld of the sea as having a gate that's locking him down with its bolts and its bars. And notice what he says, forever. There's no hope. If it's up to Jonah, there's no hope. He's, he's helpless. He's going to be locked underwater in the bottom of the ocean forever. And he knows he deserves it because he ran from God. He knows he deserves it because he disobeyed and ran from God's will. And he's being entombed alive. All of this descriptive language to show us that Jonah's extreme depth of despair. Look how utterly hopeless he is. What can he do? What can he do? What can we do when our, when our sins and mistakes have pinned us down? You've ever, been, you've ever been so far down a path that you feel like you can't come back as a Christian? Maybe it's in your sin that you go so far down that path, it's hopeless. Even, you think even God, if he wanted to, couldn't do anything to help this. Or maybe just mistakes in your life, debt building up, bad decisions about where you live and what, what job that you have. And it just seems to pile up on you and you feel like there's nothing I can do. 
But all we have to do is cry out to God for help. That's what he does. He recognizes the sovereignty of God. He, he prays to God that he is helpless. Look at Psalm 42 with me. I think Psalm 42 answers this. By the way, Jonah 2 is very similar to a lot of Psalms. Jonah knew his Bible. Jonah knew the Psalms so well that when he has to compose a Psalm of his own in the belly of the fish, he can do it. Psalm 42 is our answer. What do we do when we feel so desperate, so helpless? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving. A multitude keeping festival. Things used to be so good, but now... Now the psalmist feels like he's lost. He's helpless. Look what he says now. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? He starts talking to his own self here, his own soul. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Hope in God, that's the only answer. And then he goes on. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. My Lord, he's saying, my God. I'm in such despair. Therefore, I remember you. That's what Jonah's going to say. I remembered you. From the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, no matter where this person was writing this psalm, he remembered the Lord. And the Lord's everywhere. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. Look at this verse. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. When you're in this kind of despair, this kind of depression, this kind of helplessness, It feels like the ocean is just crushing you and throwing you back down and down and down. And it matches much with the language of what's actually happening to Jonah. The Lord will command his loving kindness, his his faithfulness, his covenant love in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In this case, the guy was being oppressed because of his enemies. In Jonah's case, it's because of his own sin. But the solution is the same. As the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Here's the solution. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. What's the solution when you're helpless? To call out to the only one who can help. To call out to the only one who can help you. God. We certainly have to act. We certainly have to do things. But ultimately, it's, if God doesn't bless it, if God doesn't make it happen, it's not going to happen. So we've got to recognize His sovereignty. We've got to understand that man is helpless, that we are helpless without God. We're helpless in spiritual matters. We're helpless in physical matters. But thirdly, we have to be thankful for the grace of God. We have to be thankful for the grace of God. That's how Jonah ends this prayer. He's thankful for what God has done. First, he recognizes what, is, what has happened. Then, then he recognizes his own helplessness. And he looks to God and he says that he's thankful. Do you ever just stop and thank the Lord for saving you? Do you ever just stop and thank him? Really, we should be doing this every day for what he has done in your life. Not just the fact that you won't go to hell, but that you didn't end up a junkie on the street or you didn't end up dying in a car crash before the Lord saved you. God has done so much and we should be grateful for it. 
grateful for it. We should praise him because of it. And that's what Jonah does. But you have brought up my life from the pit. Last part of verse 6 here. You see that change there? That but? But you, God, you have brought up my life from the pit. Again, this idea of being in Sheol. He felt like he was already there. And he says, oh, Lord, my God. Oh, Yahweh, my God. Aren't you thankful for these but gods in Scripture? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that he's so thankful for the but gods in Scripture. Otherwise, we'd all be lost. There's just so many of them. I'll name a few for you. Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. I'm not not going to Sheol, the place where the wicked wait punishment. I'm not going to hell. God will redeem me from that. That's where we're all headed, by the way. God redeems you. How does he redeem you? Through Christ. For he will receive me. Acts 2.24, New Testament now. But God raised Jesus up again. They put him to death on the cross. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful for all these but God passages. One of my favorites, Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. He goes on to talk about Christ's work on the cross for us. But God, if it wasn't for God, Jonah would die and be cast off be in Sheol. If it wasn't uh, for God, we couldn't even be saved. If it wasn't for God, Christ wouldn't have come, but God. And so Jonah has, to this point, continued to descend due to his sin. He's just descended further and further down. You recall he went down to Joppa, it says in chapter 1. He went down into the ship. He went down from the ship into the sea when they threw him overboard. Now he's down to the bottom of the sea. It's just continually down Until the end of verse 6. But you have brought up my life. A life of sin is continually downward. Now if you're not saved, a life of sin is always downward and continues to go downward until you end up in hell. But as a believer, you're going up in your sanctification, but then you sin and go back downward. And until God brings you up, until you repent, until you pray to Him and ask for His help. It will be continuously downward. So Jonah's going down, 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 and then it says, but God brought my life up, brought my soul up. He's not his lowest possible descent, and God breaks in to save him. What a dramatic reversal of what we've read about so far in this chapter. His, his death has been averted. His destiny, we might say, has been changed. We know God has already predestined him, but his life will forever be changed. And he's got no one else to thank but God. God heard him. God answered him. That's the point he's trying to make. He's going to drive home this idea that salvation is from the Lord. God heard his prayer and answered him. He thought he'd been banished from the presence of God, but he hadn't. He hadn't. God God brought him back. God heard his prayer. And so Jonah responds with praise. He's thanking God. He calls him Lord my God, Yahweh my God. And he describes when this happened, while I was fainting away. He was losing consciousness. 
He was blacking out. He was about to die. He was down at the bottom of the ocean. The currents had taken him down quickly. The water's around him. The weeds are around him. He's losing oxygen. He's about to die. At that moment, his last thought was of the Lord, of his God. He focused his mind on the God who saves, the only one who can help him. As Jonah was about to die, he, he thought of the living God of Israel who's promised to save his elect. And that moment, he had no problem with God's grace. And he'll, he'll have another problem by the end of Jonah with God's grace, by the end of the book, but, but not with God's grace being poured out on him. And he says, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple, whether it's the, the temple in heaven or on the earth, the, the prayer came to God. He heard it. He, he wasn't actually expelled from God's presence. God heard the prayer. God answered the prayer. As he, he remembers God and, and he prays about this, he's imagining that this prayer just came into God's presence. That God allowed the prayer to be heard instead of ignored. You know, God doesn't promise to hear unbelievers' prayers. He promises to hear believers' prayers because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And, and even though Christ had not yet come, it works the same way. He promised his faithful people in the Old Testament to hear their prayers. Jonah has forgotten that. Jonah feels like it can't be true for him. He's, he's been cast off. But, but indeed, God has heard his prayer. And that God answered his prayer and saved him just causes him to break out in praise. Now he talks about what he's going to do to show his thankfulness. And he contrasts this with people who worship vain idols. Those who regard vain idols, they forsake their faithfulness. This is an interesting passage here. It's much debated, but I think he's teaching Israel a lesson. The northern tribe of Israel had gone into apostasy many times. The kings had come out and worshipped idols and worshipped false gods. All the pagans of the world worship vain idols. But particularly God's people, the Jews, why are they worshiping vain idols? They turned away from the Lord and, and he's saying they forsake God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. It's the word hesed here. Hesed, God's covenant love, his loving kindness is the translation I like. It's his covenant love and, and they've set it aside. He promised to love them if they would follow him in the covenant and he set, they've set it aside. They worship vain idols. Why would they do that, Jonah says? Look at what God has done for me. Why would they go somewhere else? Why would we turn somewhere else when we have God, when we have Christ? We do sometimes though, don't we? We do turn to other places. Pleasure, money, the things of the world. And God, God brings us back. So it's a reminder, I think, to Israel that he's writing to in this book. That's why he prays it as well in the belly of the fish. And in verse 9, here's what he says. I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. He's going to go and and do sacrifices as soon as he can at the temple. That which I have vowed, I will pay. So he's vowed to give something as well. And then this key verse here in the book of Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's Jonah summarizing what all God has done for him. If you just had to put it in one phrase, salvation is from the Lord. What's he talking about? Justification, sanctification, glorification, all of the above. All of the above. Every possible thing that has to do with salvation is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. The Lord saves. It's God's grace here. Jonah didn't earn that. What did he do? He, he did exactly the opposite. He ran away from God. His parents didn't do it for him. His, his, his circumcision as a Jew didn't do it for him. His attendance going to temple didn't do it for him. What did it for him? Nothing he did. Nothing he did. His free will. But where's his free will in this? 
He does not have ultimate free will because mankind doesn't. He has the ability as, as a follower of God to sin or not sin. That's his will. And where'd that get him? Where did his will get him? Three days out, away from God, at the bottom of the ocean. He did nothing. God did it all. God has to do it all because we're sinners and we're helpless. If you follow the outline here, if you're helpless, that means you can't do it. Whether you're at the bottom of the ocean needing to be saved as a prophet of God, or whether you're a sinner on the road to hell needing to be saved. God does it all. Psalm 3.8 says the same thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He owns it. He brings it about. He finishes it. He starts it. However you want to look at it. Acts 4.12. Peter's preaching. Preaching the gospel here in Acts. And he says, there is salvation in no one else. Where else do you go? Where else do you go? The vain idols don't answer you. Those pagan sailors tried to have their gods answer them to stop the storm. That didn't work. The only thing that stopped it was God. The only thing that rescued Jonah in chapter 2 is God, the true God. The only thing that rescues Nineveh in chapter 3 is the true God. There's nowhere else to go. It belongs to the Lord. He delivers. He saves. That's the message that, that Jonah's going to take to Nineveh. Of course, he won't say it quite like that, but that is the message. And then in verse 10, just a, a finishing verse here for the chapter. Then the Lord commanded, literally, he spoke to the fish. The idea is God said something to the fish, told it what to do, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. That's the literal translation in the NASB. Even the fish here follows God's commands better than Jonah. Even the fish. And notice, this, again, this is not a joy ride. This is not a roller coaster here, right? Having some fun. Vomited Jonah up. What a humbling experience, right? What a humbling experience. The Jews already didn't like the, the sea and were scared of what was underneath the water, as, as many people were, but to have a fish obey God and vomit, you know, God said vomit him up with all the other things that were in the stomach. What a humbling experience. And he learned a lesson. You can't run from God. You can't disobey God. If you're one of his, he'll bring you back. And sometimes there's consequences to that. Sometimes there's consequences. So God saved the, the pagan sailors. He, he's now delivered and saved his disobedient prophet. Next, we'll look next week at how he saves the wicked city of Nineveh. But we need to understand that salvation is of the Lord. That's the whole point of the passage. Salvation is from the Lord. From the beginning of the Bible until the end. It's from the Lord. We have to recognize God's sovereignty, that we're helpless. And then when he actually shows his grace to us and is compassionate, we need to thank him for it. And doesn't that explain the three responses we need to have to our own salvation? It's Jonah's response to his deliverance. I think he thought about this the rest of his days. He remembered he remembered, he wrote it down, and they were to study this book and have a proper response. Do you believe salvation is from the Lord? Do you, do you know salvation is from the Lord? Or do you think that you're doing something to save yourself? Whether it's physical or spiritual, salvation is from the Lord. We can't do anything. So you need to confess that to the Lord and ask him to save you whatever situation you're in. Whether you need to become saved initially and be justified, or whether you're in sanctification process. You need to ask the Lord to do it for you because you can't. Let's ask him to do that now. Father, we thank you for this message for Jonah, the book of Jonah. And it's, a, it's not just a kid's story. It benefits all of us. In fact, it was written for a nation that had walked away from you, a, a nation that would eventually be destroyed because of their disobedience. But we pray that we will take heed to this message, Lord, that we will indeed obey you, that we will not run from you to begin with. But when we do, let us come back and realize salvation is only from you.
that without it, we're lost. Without it, we're lost. You will, you will keep us in the faith. You will preserve us. You will bring us home to glory. And let us consider now if we're truly saved, if we're truly even in the faith. Lord, for those here today, work on their hearts to see that they will perish in Sheol. They will perish unless you save them. And let them call out to you. Let them call out to you to be saved. I pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.